Good afternoon, everyone. I'm going to call this group to order. Um, as you no doubt have noticed, those of you who've been to Public Square before, we have had to expand a bit since you saw us last. And frankly, uh, we're, of course, thrilled to have to do that. But in order to remain um, truly a public square organized around a open rectangle, uh, we moved from the previous room to this one for this very special and timely occasion. Welcome to Public Square. I'm Leonard Wallach. I'm the executive director. And here's Dana Wallach, who's the director of programs and public affairs for our organization. Public Square holds community-based seminars that model democratic policy discussion and foster student civic engagement. Our seminars are always highly informative, they're nonpartisan, and they're solution-oriented. Our highly successful student engagement program, which involves 12 students from four local colleges and universities, um, UCSB, Westmont College, SBCC, and Cal State University Channel Islands, is really the jewel in our crown. During the course of the year, students attend our seminars. They have an opportunity to meet with key community leaders, both here and also um, in private meetings that we arrange with them. And during the summer, we give them the opportunity through our civics initiative to earn, with the help of stipends, the opportunity to volunteer in nonprofit organizations, congressional offices, and also social service agencies. So, for example, last summer, our students could be found as interns at Women's Economic Ventures, the Sansom Clinic Healthcare, the Legal Aid Foundation, the California State Assembly Republican Caucus in Sacramento, and the Office of State Senator uh, Hannah Beth Jackson here in Santa Barbara. They were also in congressional offices in their own home states, uh, one of which was Arizona, another of which was Washington State. So over the course of the summer, they are literally putting into practice the kind of political science lessons that they're learning in their classrooms and the kind of civic ideals that we espouse here at Public Square. Our free seminars and our student stipends are made possible through the generous support of private foundations, corporate sponsors, and individual donors, who we are very grateful for and who we thank uh, in the program that is held at, uh, put, put out each time uh, for you to peruse. And our venue is generously provided by the Kimpton Canary Hotel. The format of our seminars is as follows. Our speaker makes informal remarks of about 30 minutes and then leads a solution-focused conversation that lasts about an hour and concludes with, if it seems appropriate, a brief summation and then a reception for all of the participants. So it's now my pleasure to introduce today's speaker. Charlie Sykes, a veteran journalist and a political commentator, is the editor-in-chief of The Bulwark, a host of The Bulwark podcast, and an NBC, MSNBC contributor. A prolific writer, he's the author of nine books on current affairs and education, including his most recent one, provocatively titled, <laughs> How the Right Lost Its Mind. 
Sykes was previously a contributing editor at the now-closed Weekly Standard and the host of its Daily Standard podcast. He co-hosted the public radio show Indivisible in 2017, which was WNYC. And then prior to that, he was a top-rated conservative talk show host in Wisconsin for 23 years. He's written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal, Politico, The National Review, and on and on. He's appeared on Meet the Press, The Today Show, ABC, NBC, Fox News, and so on and so forth. And he's been profiled on NPR. So today, at our request, he'll be discussing the future of conservatism. Please join me in welcoming our distinguished guest. Thank you very much, and uh, I'm looking forward to our dialogue, and you can ask me any question that you like. Nothing is off the table. Um, I have to warn you that I may answer some of your questions by saying I have no idea. What, it, what is the future of conservatism? Who knows? But I bet you wanted a little bit more substance, I'm guessing, to all of that. Um, but I, I, I have more opinions than maybe solid predictions here, although I do have some, I think, pretty good predictions. However, every time I start off this, I, I like to tell the story um, of the guy who woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning. His alarm goes off at 5 o'clock, and he realizes that he has an appointment at 55 South 5th Street, and he gets in the cab, and he sees that the license is 555. And he gets to his appointment, and it's on the fifth floor. And he says, God is trying to tell me something. And so he goes, and he bets $500 on the fifth horse in the fifth race at the racetrack. And sure enough, the horse came in fifth. <laughs> so... Just a, 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 just a reminder that you can have all of the data correctly, you know, correct, and, and still miss the point. So, and I also want to just put a little bit in, in, in context because, you know, in, in, my, in my very, very kind uh, introduction, um, I have to make it very clear that for a long time I was very much a part of the conservative movement as we understand it, as we understood it in this country. I mean, I, I, have, I have a lot to answer for um, seriously. But, um, you know, there was a time when I really thought I understood what conservatism was all about. And so I've experienced this, this transition with, uh, uh, with a good deal of um, uh, horror at, at certain times, but also uh, puzzlement. But I want to just tell you, just give you, put, put my own career in a little bit of perspective here. So back in 2015, when um, I was very much part of, particularly in, in Wisconsin, of the conservative movement. I wrote a piece, uh, an, an article, in which I said, Donald Trump is a cartoon version of every leftist media negative stereotype of the reactionary nativist misogynist right, except that he's not a cartoon. He's the leading GOP candidate for president at the moment. To be clear, Donald Trump is not only a cynical opportunist, an incoherent ideologue, but a generally repellent human being. Even reading his tweets makes you dumber. This is 2015. Um, and then a, a year later, in May of 2016, uh, I made my very final appearance on Fox News um, when I was asked, well, why are you not getting on board the Trump train? And I said, well, Donald Trump's a serial liar, a con man who mocks the disabled and women. He's a narcissist and a bully, 
a man with no fixed principles who has the vocabulary of an emotionally insecure nine-year-old. So no, I don't want to give him control of the IRS, the FBI, and the nuclear codes. That's just me. In a, well, I read this to you um, as an indication of how little influence I obviously had on the Republican Party um, and the conservative movement. So as we sit here today, 91% or so of, of Republicans approve of Donald Trump. The party is really thoroughly Trumpified. We're watching members of Congress march in lockstep. And even many of the leading uh, writers and thinkers of the conservative movement have decided that, well, maybe he's not so bad. So it's been an extraordinary, it's been an extraordinary and rather rugged trip here. So look, I'm going to try to answer a couple of questions or give you my, at least what I think are the most important questions. And if I don't address something specific, feel, you know, feel free to ask me about it. But I guess the, the main question is before we get to what is the future of conservatism is you have to ask what is conservatism and what the hell just happened to it? Um, is, is what we're seeing now with Donald Trump, is, is it a, was a straight line from other conservatives? There are people, um, critics on the left, who will say he's an inevitable outgrowth of, of what the conservative movement has been. You can draw a line from Ronald Reagan to Newt Gingrich to George Bush, to whatever, um, and, and, and to Donald Trump. So he is what you have always been. He is the expression of what you Republicans and you conservatives always were really all about. He just says it in the out, outdoor voice. Now, I don't agree with that, because I think nuances are rather important here. Um, Adlai Stevenson is not Che Guevara. Uh, Jack Kemp and... Um, Jack Kemp and uh, uh, I'm trying to think of, of, of some other folks, and you know, and, and George Bush are not are not Donald Trump, and those differences are important to keep in mind. And I certainly was part of a conservative movement that I thought was headed in a completely different direction. Um, e even though I've been through this, what I describe as the invasion of the body snatchers, people who I've known for 20 or 30 years who are you know, completely rational, normal human beings who suddenly have that look in their eye like, you know, oh my gosh, they got you too. So I have experienced that. So I don't believe that Donald Trump is a reflection of what conservatism was inevitably going to become, because I think there were alternative futures. There are alternative paths. But I also think it's fair to say that he reflects a pre-existing dysfunction in the Republican Party. He didn't just appear as a black swan event. So this is something that um, people in my dwindling camp have to ask ourselves. Uh, what did we miss? What did we not understand? I remember uh, talking with George Will right after the election, and the, you know, in which we had about 150 conversations, like, what the hell just happened? And, and he, his observation was, I think, pretty obvious that what we thought of conservatism and things like fiscal conservatism and things like that were a much thinner crust than we had ever imagined, that we were a much smaller band than we actually uh, thought that we, we, we were. So there are things that I knew were latent in conservatism, uh, the recessive genes of conservatism, um, the drunk at the end of the bar that spouted certain things about members of minority groups and things like that, that, that you would assume is, okay, that's your, that's your crazy uncle at Thanksgiving. 
um, we can safely ignore them. We can look the other way. Uh, there were the conspiracy theorists. We all knew that they were there. They were the darker corners of, of, the, of the fever swamps of the right. And so maybe we didn't confront them. We didn't expect that they would ever basically move to the front uh, and, and take over the movement. We always assumed that the center, by which I mean the rational center, would, would, would hold. So when you look back, you think, okay, so did we ignore certain things that were out there? Were the ideas that we expressed really sincerely held, um, or were they covers for other things? And I have, I have different answers there. Now, before we get into this, in terms of like what is conservatism, uh, somebody asked me today, my friend Charlie asked me today whether, you know, whether I'm rethinking conservative ideas, and, and I think the, the first sentence was, well, first of all, I've got to figure out what it means to be a conservative anymore. What is conservatism? Uh, when, what does it mean? How do you define it? And part of the problem of this is that the conservative movement has always been kind of a messy thing. Um, it's been a combination of libertarians and social conservatives, chamber of commerce conservatives, and people who um, were more motivated by opposition to communism. There were people who had very, very disparate um, ideas and attitudes, and they were held together by a, a lot of things during the Cold War by communism um, and by a shared antipathy to the left, which we'll get to in, in a moment. Um, you had classical liberals and, and a much more authoritarian strain, uh, and now we're seeing it broken down. But I, there's two things that I want to re really sort of underline, I hope we, we can talk about more, is number one, I think there's a big difference between the conservative movement and conservative ideas. The conservative movement being the people, the politicians, the institutions, the grifters, the various other players and organizations, which is, is separate from the ideas. And even if it turns out that the movement is thoroughly corrupt and gutless and hypocritical, does it discredit the ideas? And among these ideas, I think, would be these fundamental principles of classical liberalism, you know, small government, freedom, constitutional government, free markets, uh, all of those kinds of things that I thought the conservative movement was, was, was about. But the second point is this, in, in, and really this was something that, um, well, I, I was going to say that, that George Will and I talked about, but I've had so many conversations along the same line. The recognition of one of the fundamental things that people like me got wrong, which I think people still mistake, a lot of us thought that conservatism or that American politics in general is about ideas and it's about policies. We thought that's what politics was about. In fact, it is now more about attitude and it is about identity. And as long as we understand that, we can understand how a Republican Party can abandon one idea after another and chase the will of a wisp of whatever the, the orange god king happens to say at any given time, if in fact it is a matter of tribal loyalty rather than ideas. So the conservative movement up until Trump had really been this balancing of various competing ideas, and sort of the settlement was what was known as ordered liberty. It's kind of a little bit of tension 
between a party that says we're all about national security and law and order, but also we're about individual freedom, that has libertarians, but also has you know, people with, with, di with different agendas. But I think you know, now what we're realizing is the politics is changing in nature, and that it is hard to overstate how much political affiliation is about identity, about negative partisanship, and it again explains a lot that's going on here, including the degree to which the Republican Party has ceased to be the party of ideas. And I'm old enough to remember when I thought it was. I, my, my father was a, was a liberal activist. I was on the state executive board of the, uh, the Young Democrats of Wisconsin when I was in college. Uh, for years, I described myself as a recovering liberal, in part because I thought that conservatism had become the party of ideas. It seems ludicrous to say that now. Um, but the fact that, that, in fact, we have become more, more and more um, based on this cult of personality. So, you know, we can walk through what happened, how the Republican Party, the Conservative Party, outsourced its thought leadership to the loudest voice at the end of the bar, the perpetual outrage machines, the, the way in which the media landscape has changed so dramatically, and I cannot overstate how significant that is, I was part of this as a conservative radio host, and I certainly was, was there from basically ground zero. And I watched as we went from being the alternative voice telling the other side of the story to a full-fledged, full-blown alternative reality silo. And again, we can't talk about American politics now without recognizing that we live in, country, in, a, in, a, in a country in which half the population has a completely different narrative, different facts, different issues, different narratives, and it's, uh, it, it, it is an extraordinary moment, and everything needs to be seen through that, that filter. Also, the degree to which people now think of politics as being strictly binary, which is that no matter how bad my side is, the other side is, is worse. And um, this is a... It's also known as, as whataboutism. But the binary choice will enable people to swallow almost any indignity if they believe that the fate of the country is at stake because the other side is so truly horrible that they must be stopped by any means necessary. So that you and I don't disagree about issues. You hate me. You hate America. You are enemies of the people. You don't have discussions and debates with people who hate you, who hate America, who hate God. You just beat them and you have to defeat them. This is, again, part of the, the, the binary culture that we, we have. Um, if you want to, we can also get into the, the whole fascinating question of what happened to the Christian right and how the Christian right went from a group that emphasized uh, that character counts to a group that says... Um, d demographically, you, you go back into the 1990s, and no group felt more strongly that personal character was relevant to someone's public service than the evangelical Christian right. No group felt more strongly, but that's when Bill Clinton was president. Um, right now, no group in America is more likely to say personal character does not matter for a politician than the evangelical Christian right. I mean, it is a genuinely head-snapping wow moment in American 
in American politics. And a lot of that has to do with the Faustian bargain that, that in general the right has made. Now everybody knows what the Faustian bargain is, but I want you to think about um, the full implications of that. And you know, part of it is just simply transactional. Why do conservatives go along with Donald Trump? Why do they put up with the lies? Why do they put up with the corruption and the betrayals? Well, the answer is because it's a bargain. It's a deal. See, in the Faustian bargain, you get lots of things that you want. Okay, so conservatives and Republicans get things like conservative judges, which is immensely important for them, tax cuts, regulatory reform. So in the Faustian bargain, remember, you get lots of good stuff. You get money. You get women. I'm sorry for the women here, but I mean, in Faust, it's, it, it, it is that way. You, you get things that are desirable, but then you find out that the price is way more than you thought it was, and the price keeps going up until you realize you've sold your soul. So um, some of my very, very good friends, and I'm not telling school, uh, stories out of school because this has been, we've discussed this endlessly, but some of my very, very, very closest friends in, in politics, um, like Paul Ryan, had no illusions about what Trumpism was. Not just Trump, but what he represented in terms of the nativism, in terms of the willingness to tolerate racism, uh, his approach to, uh, to the balance of power, all of those things. He had no illusions whatsoever. He didn't say anything in private that was that much different than what I said. But he made a calculation that I have to go along because I will get things that I want, that I will get these tax cuts, I will get this legislation that I would not get from a Democratic president, and that is worth it. But again, with each compromise, it gets higher and higher and higher. It gets worse and worse and worse. So what does it mean to be... You know, so I mean, I'll, I'll be honest with you. A lot of conservatives, we were sitting in a room with conservatives, they would say, Sykes, what are you bitching about? You're getting everything you want. You're getting these judges. You're getting the tax cuts. You're getting these conservative policies. And so, you know, yes, the conservative movement, you know, does feel that Donald Trump is delivering for them, and they're willing to overlook all of the other stuff, including the fact that he's abandoned the concept of free trade that he's negated much of the tax cuts by unilaterally you know, imposing tariffs. And by the way, I don't know about you, I did not know that the President of the United States could unilaterally raise taxes by billions of dollars without going through Congress. I genuinely did not know that. And I certainly didn't think that Republicans and conservatives would go, yeah, you, you go, you just, you just raise taxes by uh, presidential edict, they're okay with this. Um, I certainly did not expect that a conservative Republican Party would, in, would either enthusiastically support or look the other way when the president is handing out billions of dollars in bailouts to the farmers. I mean, we hate socialism, right, except when we're doing it. Uh, the, the Trump bailouts of farmers actually now exceeds in dollar value the bailout of the auto companies, which I remember when conservatives thought that that was a bad idea. Uh, we're also seeing the extraordinary expansion of executive power. If there was one principle that seemed to unite conservatives, it was we are for small government. We want to resist the concentration of power, and it's sort of, you know, never mind about that. Most obvious thing, and this, this is one of the hardest for me to get around, 
uh, even though it's certainly no longer a terribly sexy issue. But to watch the explosion of the deficit under, under Republicans is truly amazing. Um, today we announced that we're hitting another trillion dollar a year uh, deficit. So my own experience, again, I'm, I'm from Wisconsin, so, um, and I had a talk show, and I probably had Paul Ryan on my show 100 times, or I introduced him at various events, um, you know, another you know, you know, three dozen times in, in which he warned about the deficit and the impending debt crisis and how horrible this was. Um, Senator Ron Johnson, Republican from Wisconsin, uh, used to, we used to joke that he was the most boring man in America because he would go around and he would bring these charts which were genuinely horrifying about the size of the deficit and the debt. Then this was what they talked about all the time. And now to watch them in power and saying we don't care anymore, I mean, this is, again, that's another head-snapping moment about what do conservatives really believe, and did they ever mean it? Did they ever really care about the debt and the deficit? Because perhaps I was a sucker. I thought they believed it. I thought it was a real problem. And so the, yeah, never mind, um, is interesting. Also, Donald Trump's uh, erosion of the rule of law, we could just go through this, his rejection of American exceptionalism and our leadership role in the world, and not to mention just the willingness to tolerate the lies and, and, and corruption that we've, we, we've, we've seen from Trump. So I guess one of the questions that I would, I would throw out to consider when we ask what is the future of conservatism, and I'm going to admit I don't know at this point because I don't know how much of what we're seeing now is simply because we're in the grips of this fever, this cult of personality, that conservatism is whatever Donald Trump says. So when he's gone, are we, are we going to be okay again? I mean, the day after Trump leaves, does everything go back to normal? Um, do conservatives find their spine and their souls and their principles again? Will that happen? Or has he so fundamentally changed the norms and the character of American politics in general and the conservative movement in particular that we are going to be paying a price for this for a generation? Um, we don't know the answer. Now, how, how enduring is Trumpism. And is Trumpism really a thing as opposed to sort of his impulses and his, uh, and his, and his id? So I, I, had, I had written down just some things that I thought conservatives should do and which I've uh, been once again almost completely ignored um, about. But I, mean, I do think that, look, conservatives are going to have to address the legitimate grievances that Donald Trump uh, has, uh, has identified with the white working class. They're going to have to find a way to do this and separate them from the more toxic elements of, of Trumpism, which include the, the racism, the misogyny, the nativism, all of that. But to recognize that there are actual real problems out there that Republicans and conservatives had completely ignored for four years. I do think they're going to, at some point, we're going to have to return to some sort of first principles. And I think it's going to look uh, very much like a, a form of classical liberalism. Um, but let's be honest about it. Um, moderates do not fill auditoriums. Uh, we can talk about you know, the, the, how Americans really want centrism, but I don't see the energy at the moment for that. So I do think that there's going to be a rethinking among conservatives about what they're going to be. I mean, I, I do think that the Republican Party, and this was something that I thought they were like within like five minutes of being able to uh, accomplish, they need to clarify 
that they um, are not in the thrall of crony capitalism and, and K Street special, special interests. I think one of the most effective things that Donald Trump and, frankly, Bernie Sanders are saying is, you know, the system is rigged and we need to drain the swamp. Um, I think Sanders' ideas are wrong. I think Trump is a total phony when it comes to that. But people can be forgiven when they think, a lot of good talk about free markets, but now you Republicans, you're picking the winners and losers as well, and many of your policies are, are in the service of, of, of well-heeled special interests. But finally, and I want to leave you with this, um, because I, I really was thinking, you know, what, what is the future of conservatism? What are the alternatives? And um, I, I hope you listen to this, because this is really where I do, I do come down on this. There are two broad possibilities, um, and it will lead me to my overall prediction. It will either be the future of the conservative movement over the next generation, either be populist, nativist, authoritarian, illiberal, and protectionist, um, and reactionary, or it will be reformist, inclusive, free market-oriented, fact-based, and reactionary. Because the one thing that conservatives do better than anything else is they know what they're against. This is the lesson that Republicans and conservatives really were very clear about what they were opposed to and who they hated, much weaker about what they were in favor of. So whatever happens, I think you're going to see a conservative movement that will increasingly define itself in opposition to progressivism and the left. This is, will be the comfort zone. This will be the safe space for, for them. If there is a democratic president, the movement will coalesce and will go back to, again, what it does. Unfortunately, this will take place within the context of the increasing tribalization and division in our in our in our country, but um, you know, I, I, I was I've, I've been reading a lot about uh, this whole question, trying to rethink what I thought conservatism was, and I think some of the most thoughtful people about conservatism um, will say that it, it, it's not conservatism has never been an ideology in the way that say Marxism was. It was more of an impulse or it was more of an attitude, more of a, which again, goes back to the question of, when I use the word reactionary, I can use it in a pejorative sense, but I also mean that, that as, as, as tempering the excesses, both of government and of, uh, of, of other ideologies. So there's, there's a benign way of tempering the excesses, and I do think in this country we do need two strong, sane, rational political parties. We do need the push and pull of people who are talking about these various things. That dialogue, that, that tension is the essence of our system of, of government. So I do think that that's, that is important. But the question is whether or not it's going to be um, a reaction uh, against enemies, against the evil, or whether it's going to be a debate of ideas. And, and I wish I were more optimistic about all of this. Now, you, you all uh, could have invited a motivational speaker tonight. Um, instead, you invited a demotivational speaker. Um, because the one prediction 
that, that I, I, I've, I've been making for several years now. And um, when I say that I'm confident in it, 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 it just sounds wrong. But that almost everything bad that's happening in politics and media is going to get worse. <laughs> so uh, at, least, at least in the short run, that the trends we're seeing in terms of the alternative reality silos of the media, that's going to intensify. Um, the tribalization of our politics, especially as they become more and more um, uh, removed from any sort of principle or any sort of sense of fair play, that gets worse. So I do think that we're going to have to ride this out, and hopefully we can find a way to be those voices that are not going to go along with it, that I'm not sure that I think that the, there's a lot of impulse in American society right now to say, you have to choose sides. I've chosen a side. But I also think that there's a lot of value in people saying, I'm going to choose the side of, of rational discussion rather than be one of the partisans. So those are my limited insights into what's going on. And I'm guessing that you have a lot of questions. First, let's thank our speaker for a raising a series of questions in a profound way because of his own unique experience that I think are on the minds of many, irrespective of whether or not they happen to be current or former members of the parties or an independent, um, a deep and thoughtful and honest reflection that I think is a great starting point for a conversation about American politics in the future. Our format is quite simple, which is to say, once the speaker has concluded his or her remarks, we ask them to recognize those who'd like to make comments or raise questions. So all you have to do is just raise your hand. We're eager to get to everyone we can during the course of this uh, conversation. And uh, he'll recognize you, and then one of our three students will bring you a mic. And when you receive the mic, just do two things. Make sure to speak into it and speak into it loudly. And that's because we do record all of our events for podcast uh, on our website. And we're very eager to capture your voice and include it in the conversation. So that said, let the games begin. Okay, so I didn't know we were being recorded. Otherwise, I wouldn't have said half those things. No, no I'm, just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right, right over here. Yes, and by the way, if, if I don't answer your question, um, let me know that I didn't. I mean, I may not want to, but just... Uh, <laughs> okay, I, I do have a question, but just a little comment. Yeah. Uh, one, most dicta all dictators have had a lot of supporters, or else they wouldn't have become dictators. Uh, so don't expect morality in politics. And uh, the other thing is I have a friend who works in the Reagan administration, is very, very much more conservative than I do, but he hates Trump, and we find lots of things we can agree on. So, but the question is, one of the things you didn't bring up is the minority-majority problem. In other words, the United States, the way it's set up, uh, and it's gotten much worse, is the minority of people can rule the majority. And I think that's a big motivation of what's going on now, and, uh, and, I, and it hasn't been discussed. Because right now, like in the Senate, if you count the number of votes that put the senators in, many, many more votes went to the Democratic senators than the Republican senators, even though they wrought. And they're predicting uh, in, uh, I think, by 2040, 15 states are going to have 70% of the population. So... 
I believe they're going to have 30 senators if they keep the system, and 70 senators are going to be run by 30% of the calculation. So that has to be a faction, because you know how there, there's a big uh, desire to re reduce voter rolls, you know, this voter fraud thing. Uh, so that has to be a consideration. Do you have a comment? Yes. Um, th this is a problem for if we're concerned about the future of democracy. Um, I, I think one of the things that we've learned in the last couple of years is that, is that our, our constitutional system and our democracy are more fragile than we thought they were. I think there was a belief that we were immune to history. Uh, this is a more dramatic way of getting into your question. So that a lot of these norms um, that we have counted on, we find out can be, can be wiped away. So in terms of the legitimacy of our democracy, if we get to a point where the majority is shut out of, of government, we have a real problem. Now, our system was not set up to be a democracy. Our system was not set up to be majoritarian. And, I, and, I, and I'm not being critical of that. But it is really possible, two scenarios. Number one, that let's say that a candidate, one candidate, wins the popular vote by five to seven million votes the next time and loses in the Electoral College. What does that do to the legitimacy and respect for constitutional norms? Then you overlay that with the scenario you just mentioned, which is not far-fetched. I wish I had the number in front of me, but uh, it was something like 18% you know, of the population can control a majority of the US Senate. And again, the Senate was initially set up to not be small d democratic, but there becomes a huge imbalance. And then that whole question of, um, you know, we, uh, we the people, American citizens, having a shared experience and a shared story really starts to fray because it really does begin to draw those lines much more harshly. And so I am worried about that. And I don't know what the quick fix is. I mean, we're not going to get rid of the Electoral College anytime soon. We're not going to get rid of the Senate. But especially as people sort themselves out. I mean, this is one of the things that's been happening here. Um, in terms of there was a book written back in the 1990s, I think, called The Big Sort, that shows how people are segregating themselves by lifestyle and politics geographically. So the states that were red get redder. The blue states get bluer. And it's happening on a county level. So think of what that does for sort of cohesiveness. And, and, and it adds to the us versus them. And again, then you have the same phenomenon on social media and media. You really do have different countries, but you're right. I wish I had an answer for what you do about that. If you have a small minority of the, of the population controlling it um, and uh, what the implications are. I mean, basically, look, you know, a lot of what we take for granted is simply because we take it for granted, because we believe in the legitimacy and the fairness of our system. What happens if Americans stop believing in it? That's how democracies die. This. Way down there. Oh, I'm sorry. You're, you're too close. I agree with you that I, I really think we have to have two strong parties, and so this we versus them attitude is very destructive. To me, fundamental at, at that is the ability to, to have dialogue, meaningful dialogue, and to listen to each other and to find where we can agree and disagree. 
how can we ever get back to that point? Because it seems today no one wants to listen. They just want to go to their corners. Well, that, that's a hard question. And I've been involved in a lot of these discussions where we, we've talked about talking across the divide. Uh, and my only answer is, is that if you can somehow establish an assumption of goodwill, it's amazing what you can, you can discuss and disagree about. If you recognize that you are you know, good people, um, that you don't start the conversation by saying that you, uh, you, you hate God and you hate America, um, or on the other hand that you're a, you know, you're a, a deplorable bigot, people can, can have these conversations. And, and I've experienced that, where there are people that I've disagreed with, and if you spend a little time and you, and you actually, you know, again, establish that kind of a connection, now how do you do that on a, you know, to, to, to scale? Anytime you have a conversation that is below the top line, it's, it is amazing how much you can, you, you can talk about. And by the top line is, if you're not talking Trump versus Clinton, you know, if you don't get to that, you can have some very open-minded discussions with people. But you're, you're right. And I, that's, that's my real concern, is that we're not talking to one another, um, and that we, and, the, and the, the ongoing escalation of demonization of people who disagree with you, that's what's really toxic. And that's something that's coming right from the top. And understand that, 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 uh, that the, the president is modeling behavior that is uh, having a real effect, which is that you know, if, if, I, if I hate you and you're an evil person, then, then there is no dialogue. There is no room for, for discussion. So that, I mean, that, that is dangerous, and that, that's my big question, is whether or not that's just a bubble that bursts or whether that is a long-term change in our norms and our character. You had a question. I'm sorry. I actually have a couple of questions that are kind of different. The first one was um, regarding the Electoral College. There was a lot of talk, especially in 2016, when he, when Trump didn't win the popular vote about uh, taking it out in the future. Uh, do you think that that is probable, and do you like should that happen? And then my second question was more general, I think. Um, what would you say to those who initially had hope in the conservative movement um, and have lost that hope because of Trump? Um, let me ask you, the, the, the Electoral College, be honest with you, uh, no, it's not going to go anywhere. I, I just I can't see any scenario where it's, it's going to go away. Then you ask, you know, should it? I have to say that this is like one of the very few issues that I've never written about um, because really up until relatively recently, like other conservatives. I've been a supporter of the Electoral College. But I will tell you that I am starting to have these doubts about it. In fact, this may sound kind of random, but when the president um, was attacking, uh, who was the congressman who just died from Maryland? I'm sorry. Cummings. Cummings. Uh, Re Representative Cummings, when he was talking about Baltimore being a rat-infested community. I remember it just sort of hit me that here you have the president of the United States who, who clearly can attack a state or a city without any fear that it has any blowback on him. That, that it's like, I am, not the, I am the president of the people that vote for me. And right now under our system, you can safely ignore an entire city or an entire state. The president of the United States can ignore everyone in this room. You folks in California, frankly, don't count. He can insult you in any way whatsoever. He can punish you. He can harass you. And there's nothing you can do about it because... 
He doesn't have to worry about you. Now, being from Wisconsin, of course, he cares about us. Um, but there's something, there's something um, dangerous now in the, the fact that you can have a system in which you can d- discount the interests and the needs of an entire population. And I think that that's, you know, maybe that's always been possible, but we're now seeing it in play. So every time you watch the president attack a place or a people, see it in the, in the eyes of the Electoral College. Does he care about it? He can say anything he wants about Maryland. He can say anything he wants about California. Okay, so your second question is about what can we say to people who have lost hope in the conservative movement because of Trump? Well, I'm kind of one of them. Um, the, the number of, uh, of uh, conservatives who have resisted going along with this is vanishingly small. And uh, to say that it has been um, disheartening and disillusioning is, uh, is understating it. I mean, there are people, it, it means a great deal to me that there are people like, like George Will and, and others who I could, I could name, but I'll say it's, it's been extremely disheartening watching the in, entire collapse. Um, and, you know, collapse on principle, collapse on, in terms of, uh, of political courage. Um, and, so, and so this has been a tremendously disillusioning ex- experience. I will tell you, the worst moment that I had, I can still, I can still remember this. You all remember Bill Bennett? Do you remember what he, uh, he was the education secretary, the, drug, the, 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 the drugs are? He wrote a book back in the 1990s called uh, The Book of Virtue. I mean, he was the character counts guy. And I will tell you that among the people that I looked up to, Throughout the 80s and the 90s, Bill Bennett was right at the top of the list. I mean, if you would have, uh, if we would have been t- talking five years ago, and somebody would have said, you know, name the conservatives in America you admire most, I, I probably might have included Bill because I knew him very well. Um, throughout 2016, we were actually working together on something, and so there was a um, an afternoon where I turned on. It was probably Fox News, and there's Bill Bennett talking about. You know, the problem with the never-Trumpers is their moral vanity in objecting to Donald Trump. And I said, a word I will not use here, um, I'm thinking, Bill Bennett, the guy that wrote the Book of Virtues, saying that, that we suffer from moral vanity if we are objecting to the character of Donald Trump. And it was that moment I just thought, it's, this is the invasion of the body snatchers. So yes, there's, uh, it's, it's, it's hard. Hopefully, we will have a remnant who will be able to restore it. I mean, again, conservative ideas are, there's always going to be a validity to the ideas as opposed to the movement. And particularly, over, over time, they will, they'll become relevant. But um, what we have thought of as the conservative movement in the last 20 years has really, I think, discredited itself. Yes, right here. So I'm debating about a half a dozen questions to ask because I'm so excited I got the mic. Uh, But two things I want to try to tie together to a question. One is uh, we hear a lot about liberal migration to red states and that holding out some olive branch of hope. And I'm wondering how that may tie into your handicap on the best Democratic candidate to do the job and be Trump. 
Well, those are two very different questions. Well, by um, tie them together nicely, don't you think? Well, it's, it's not, and it's not just the migration of liberals to liberal states. I mean, conservatives seem to be doing it as well. So, I mean, that's, I mean, this, that's why it's so intensifying. So, in, in Wisconsin, for example, we are we're a weird state because we have these intensely blue counties right next to intensely red counties, and it just it's like two different worlds. You go from Madison, Wisconsin, which is ninety percent Democratic to Waukesha, Wisconsin, which is overwhelmingly Republican. They're just different worlds, and they seem to be coming more and more like that. So, I mean, that, that's, that's been going on. Well, I, I, I think in terms of, look, nobody wants, I, I, I've gotten the message that Democrats don't want my advice on this because, I mean, since Republicans have completely ignored me, why should Democrats be any different, right? I mean, seriously. But I'm used to being ignored. With, so. um, I would say that Democrats, let me answer this way. In the 2018 election, Democrats picked up 40 House seats, and they did it by winning, by definition, swing swing districts. And they ran center-left centrist candidates in all of those. You know, candidates like uh, Abigail Spanberger, um, Connor Lamb in, in, in Pennsylvania. Now, all of the attention in the media has been to people like AOC, but candidates like AOC did not win in those swing districts. The Democrats would not be in control of the House if they would have run candidates like that. So there's a real lesson there. So one of the debates that Democrats are having right now is should we go hard left and activate the, the voters? Because theoretically, um, Liberal voters will not be excited to turn out and vote against Donald Trump unless what? Um, you know, un- un- unless you're in favor of Medicare for all and various other, other, other things. I-, I question that because, I mean, do Democrats need anything more to motivate them other than beating Donald Trump? I mean, is there anything they could possibly do to do that? But, but, the, but there is that theory out there that you can activate the low propensity voter or maybe some of the voters that had voted for Donald Trump if you move hard enough left. Well... In 2018, that theory was tested. And um, in every, or virtually every case, and I'm doing this by memory of a piece that was written by Jonathan Chait in uh, in The New Yorker, which I'd urge people to read, I think they went 0 for 6 on that. I think everywhere where that was tried, it failed. Where the Democrats moved to the center and appealed to the suburban swing voter, they won overwhelmingly. So the, the, the decision is, so when you're picking a candidate for president, do you accept the theory, let's move hard left because that's we're going to turn out these unicorn voters? Or do you go for the kind of voters that won the election for the Democrats in 2018? So I'm focusing on who are these suburban swing voters, suburban women who are voting overwhelmingly against the Republicans right now. Um, the only thing that can change that dynamic is if the Democrats nominate somebody who will be more offensive to them. And I don't think you can ever underestimate that binary choice mindset. Um, I don't know what the future of conservatism is, but trust me, it's not socialism. I'm sorry, I will get... 
It's me? Okay. Mm -hmm. I guess one of the very troubling, to me, most troubling aspects is the notion that even saying we are in our separate corners, yeah. when I don't feel like I'm in a corner, I just feel like I'm standing up for, you know, truth and, you know, scientifically verifiable reality. And it seems like, um, you know, there's, we have lost, perhaps it's the, you know, partially the, the, the media who has not had a response for, you know, this propaganda and the direct influence through social media that Trump has been able to avoid cross-examination on anything. No one gets a chance to ask him and pin him down on specific facts because he just tweets. So I guess, you know, one question I have is the media, will it be able to reconstitute itself as an effective fourth estate to kind of keep the whole body politic honest and, and dealing with reality? That's, I think that's the biggest question. That is a big question. And let, let, me, let me back into it this way. The thing about Donald, Donald Trump has broken the model of journalism because the, the, the system can't really handle somebody that lies that much, that fast, with that volume. And at a certain point, it's like we just can't take it anymore, which is the point. So uh, one of the things that, that really helped me understand this, um, when I was actually hosting that WNYC show, uh, one of our guests was Gary Kasparov, who was the uh, former world chess champion, and he's a Russian dissident. And uh, he has a really insight into this. He says, you know, the point of lying and propaganda is not to convince you of uh, the truth or falsity of any proposition or to support any policy. The point of all the lying is to basically make you give up, is to overwhelm your critical sensibilities. It is the annihilation of truth. I think he got that from Hannah Arendt, actually, where it's just the, the whole point is you, 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 at some point you just shrug your shoulders and say, who knows what to believe? Who knows who to believe? So what do you do? You believe what you want to believe. You believe what actually is going to strengthen your ties to your tribe. And I think that's one of the things that we're seeing here. So what Donald Trump has done is he's kind of broken this model of it. And that the real danger is not that we're going to believe the lie. It's that we have a, a country that no longer cares whether it's a lie. That's the challenge. Because we've had politicians that have lied before, right? I mean, this is not actually new. The volume is different. But I think what is different is there's a huge number of people in this country who you know, may believe the lies. But there's also a huge number of people who no longer really care that much about it. Now, that's a real problem. So here's the problem for journalism. Um, you know, and I come at this from very different, I mean, I, 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 can, I can go on, on on either side. I mean, media bias was a real thing. And the media did contribute um, greatly to its own loss of credibility um, by ignoring and not taking this issue seriously. And I lived in that world for a very, very long time. But on the other hand, right now, we are seeing some of the best journalism we've ever seen. And yet half the country either doesn't see it or doesn't believe it. 
That's the problem, and I don't know how you fix that. So one of the things that I think, and I, this, is, this, this will sound naive, it will take a fact-based, reality-based, conservative media to bring conservatives back, because let's face it, the conservatives are not going to change their mind because the New York Times editorial board says something or because NPR reports something. It's when you have a trusted media on your side um, that you know, might make a difference. The problem is that th those voices are so small and have uh, been so unsuccessful. This was one of the things we were really struggling to do at the Weekly Standard. We had the first right, you know, center-right conservative media fact check that was really extraordinarily well done. And the whole point was we needed to police our own side. And you saw what happened to the Weekly Standard. So, yeah, this, this is a real challenge going forward. Um, I mean, you had your hand up way before. Way down at the end, yeah. No, I'm sorry, him. Way down there. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to say that 50 years ago, congressmen stayed in Washington much more than they do now, and uh, they, they talked to each other. They, they went out drinking with one another, and they got to know one another, whether they... Uh, you know, agreed with them philosophically or not, wasn't the issue, but they didn't have all the, uh, the hatred and about being other. But now, because of the requirement to go back to your district and raise money every week, these people don't even know the opposition. And I think that that's another issue, which is completely different from all the other things, is somehow Congress used to... Um, be more congenial partially because they knew each other better. I want to concur in part and dissent in part from, from, from that. You're, you're absolutely right that they had to deal with each other as human beings, and this is part of the tribalization of our politics. Um, but I don't think the dynamic is that they have to go back to their districts to raise money because the dirty secret is the money's not back in the district. Um, you want to raise money, you stay in Washington, D.C., uh, to, to do that. And also, part of it is, you know, what the constituency is now demanding of them to do, which is this, this absolute, um, and I won't, I won't say ideological purity, because it's not ideological purity. It's, it's that you, you have to tow whatever it is the, 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 the line is. Tremendous pressure on these guys. And most of them, and I hate to bring this up about redistricting, but most members of Congress, particularly Republicans, do not fear Democrats. They don't worry about Democrats. They are afraid of a primary. So that also change, changes it. Um, there, are, there are a lot of problems with money, but th this, is, this is more, this I think has to do more with the, with the political culture and, and, the, and the way we, we actually select Congress. But you're absolutely right, though, um, that if you know, this is the assumption of goodwill, if you know someone, you're not going to stand up and demonize them in a way that, that is absolutely routine today. I am shocked by the way senators talk about one another, not to mention congressmen. I have a lower standard for congressmen, but, um, you know, and it just shows that there's, there's, there's no civility whatsoever. But you're right. Actually, it was funny you mentioned this because about 10 years ago, I was at a, at a banquet and there was a former senator there who um, was saying that one of the bad things that had happened in the Senate was that they didn't go on foreign trips together anymore. And I thought, oh, wow, it's that BS. I mean, there's like guys complaining you didn't get to go on junkets. But now I think there was a point that there was a legitimate point 
that at least this was, this was a place where they would get to know one another and develop personal relationships with one another. So, um, boy, I had a young lady at the end. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that was my reaction. Um, in an attempt to sort of think like a conservative, with <laughs> criticism of Trump, you know, you think compared to what? So if all of the conservative leaders that we think of typically are tied down in this bargain, is there any outsider, a Trump who's not Trump, you know, who you could identify as potentially bringing some sense of reason back to the party? Boy, I, uh, I wish I could answer that question. I, I really wish, because um, my, my experience has been every time I come up with a name, um, I'm, I'm like Lucy with, you know, with Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football. Uh, so at the moment, this is the extraordinary thing about the Republican Party. And I think I was talking with, uh, we were talking about it beforehand. In every other era of, of, of politics, there was some dissent. There was some other centers of power where you could identify, here's an alternative. There was not this kind of lockstep, craven sycophancy under the Bushes or under, um, even under Reagan. There were a lot of conser- conservatives were very, very vocal in their objections to Richard Nixon. I mean, people forget that. I mean, it's uh, the you know, National Review and William F. Buckley Jr. were very, very critical of Richard Nixon. And there isn't that. And I think the one thing about the Trump era is watching how he shrinks everyone around him. You would think this would be a moment where somebody would step into this void and would recognize this as an opportunity. And there's no one, you know? Um, and, and no, I'm, I'm not going to mention Mitt Romney because he's going to break my heart again by the end of the week. You know, but just know this, you know? So um, that's part of the problem. What comes after Trump? Uh, what does come after Trump? Uh, I, I, there's a very smart guy that I know that uh, was telling me over lunch this week. He said, you know, if Donald Trump's reelected, we're looking at President Donald Trump Jr. in 2024. And I said, oh, come on, just don't do that to me. I mean, it's just this, is, this, this year's off to a bad enough start, you know. But, but I, don't ha- I wish I did have it, you know. By the way, that, that's one of the rules I've learned in politics, though, is put not your faith in princes. I mean, so much of politics has been about if we just had this leader or this person or this person's going to do it. You know, it, it's, uh, they all let you down. Yes, way down there in the white shirt. Um, uh, thank you. I, I just want to say how much I've enjoyed this and, okay. um, and how stimulating it's been. But I want to in- ask you to talk some more about change in the future and how it might come about. And let me mention three things. Um, one is economic crisis. So one of the remarkable things about our current era is how long we've gone since there's been an economic crisis, a serious downturn. And that is beginning to benefit Donald Trump um, in a way that it really hasn't up to this point. Second is, um, for the really long haul, is generational replacement in the sense that there's there's a demographic change that's going to happen in, in that, eventually in right. this country. And that's going to create new opportunities and bring about change. And the third is, is political defeat. Um, let's hypothesize that Donald Trump gets defeated in this next election and that it's 
a crushing defeat, that he is swept. And then let's also hypothesize that he's defeated, but it's really close. Um, what do you see in these kind of different scenarios? Um, the economic crisis has typically been an opportunity for, I think, for conservative financial institutions to step forward and assert limits in a ways that they're not doing now. So what can you tell us? Um, let, me, let, me, let me start with the most optimistic scenario there. I mean, the, the, the one thing that uh, encourages political parties to regain their sanity the quickest is, uh, is cataclysmic defeat. That, that's, that's something they understand. It, it, it is unambiguous. And that would have tremendous impact. And, um, but I'm, I'm not sure that that's actually going to uh, happen. The other thing that is eventually going to transform our politics and makes a lot of this is going to change the conversation we're going to have you know, 15 years from now uh, is what you mentioned, the demographic change. Uh, it, it is interesting watching what's happened to California. Um, I was mentioning to, uh, to Charlie earlier, earlier today that in a different life, when I was a fellow at the Hoover Institution, I got to be friends with uh, Pete Wilson. Remember, any of you guys remember Pete Wilson? Pete Wilson was the Republican governor of, of California. He was a U.S. senator. Um, and um, I thought he was a really good guy, and a lot of conservatives thought it was a really good guy when he decided he was going to go after illegal immigration. Well, how did that work out for Republicans in California? So, and uh, what happened to California is going to happen in a perhaps not as uh, uh, robust sense, but it will happen nationally in terms of changing demographics. This is one of the warnings that, that I have made about Trumpism, that how do you have a political party supporting somebody um, you know, who behaves this way? How are Republicans going to go back to women, African-Americans, Mexican-Americans, Asian-Americans, and young people and say, hey, that wasn't us? Because, of course, that is who, who, who they are right now. So you know, as a national party, if you've alienated all of those groups, if you've alienated women, if you've alienated young people, and the fastest growing demographic group of non-white minorities who will be majorities in this country, what is your political future long term? What is your end game here? So yeah, they, they might win in, in the next four years, but I think you can see where the trajectory of all of this is going. You mentioned economic crisis, which of course is inevitable. My concern is, what is the Republican answer now to economic crisis? You've spent the seed corn in terms of the deficit, what bullets do you have in your uh, in, in your arsenal? Because republic, you know, let's face it, mainstream republicanism has one idea, right? One idea. It is the is the, the clean, well lit prison of the one idea, which is tax cuts. Well, how how much can you cut taxes at a certain point if you're running trillion dollar a year deficit? So I'm I'm concerned about all of that. But the other things are, what what are the answers the conservatives are going to have to not just you know the normal cyclical downturn but who's prepared for what's going to happen when we have the great displacement caused by artificial intelligence and other forms of, of technology as far as i know in politics the only person who's talking about this is andrew yang and, and 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 yet you know we may be facing a situation where tens of millions of jobs disappear and at that point I think Americans are going to be looking for real, tangible, and maybe even radical ideas for dealing with those problems. So 
A lot of these, right now, everything is sort of, you know, cultural attitude and identity. But we may be very, very close to the sort of the rubber meets the road, actual economic uh, crisis, massive unemployment, the displacement. I mean, we've seen what's been happening with the hollowing out of communities that nobody paid any attention to until it had already happened. So all of those things can happen. So I told you, well, yes, I'm sorry. We, you, you actually had the microphone in your hand at one point. We snatched yeah. it away. Yeah. I've got it again. Okay. Let's strategize about how to find a place for conservative ideas. And I think you could make a positive case for a way to get there. Uh, it seems to me that the problem is this, what, uh, what's his name, Lee Drutman calls doom loop uh, 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 partisanship. The problem is binary choices. It strikes me that when you have a two-party system, it inevitably, under current situations, has so many inherent pressures to push people either to the left or to the right that there's no center party. So the argument he makes, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, is that what we really need to do is to move toward a multi-party system. Most democracies, after all, don't have the kind of system that we have. And they've done a bit better because they have coalition governments of different kinds. When you have a coalition government, you have to make compromises. You have to make deals. You have to do the things that a lot of Americans would want to do. And public opinion that I've looked at shows a lot of support for moderate views that correspond to a conservative agenda. So, I mean, we haven't talked yet about a multi-party shift. I know there are a lot of obstacles to that, but I'm interested in your thoughts about how we might get to that multi-party system and in order to make a place for uh, conservative positions. In an ideal world, um, I, I would very much like to see that happen because once you break that binary choice, then you can be more thoughtful but realistically, I think one thing that, and, and again, I, I mean, I, I would support that. Um, I could see voting for a third party this year. I, I, that's at least a 50-50 possibility. I voted for a third party last time. Um, but our two-party system is so deeply ingrained. If you didn't have a third party rising up when you had the choice between Clinton and Trump in 2016, that was kind of the perfect moment. And if you don't have one this year, it's hard to see how it, it develops. I mean, that, that's part of the problem is that it, it's, our system is so institutionalized and it, it's, so, it's very sclerotic in, in a lot of ways. Um, but, but you are right. But you also asked about places for conservative ideas. I mean, th there are still places, little redoubts, where people are still talking about these alternatives. Because eventually, look, there are things that government does better than the marketplace. But there are also things that the marketplace does a lot better than government. And there are people who need to make this case that, in fact, yes, I know there are people who want a central government, federal government plan for everything. Um, I also think that there's room for people who make the argument, you know, maybe we ought to be more skeptical of a planned economy, more skeptical of central government. Um, and here are other ideas to devolve power in different and more creative ways. This is the kind of thing that I think that there is that push and, and pull that can, that, that can happen here. Um, but I, I wish I could be more optimistic. I actually gave a talk, I'm trying to remember, where I, I made this passionate case for the third party. And I think I probably believed it for about five minutes um, un, un, until people sat me down and showed me the numbers and how it actually worked. But, but yeah, I, I would like to see a multi-party system. I would also like a unicorn for Christmas, but 
But but but you're right. That's that's the way you know that that is that is the way to do it. And also keep in mind. I mean, it's it's parties can transform themselves. I mean, it's interesting to me to look at at, at Great Britain. Um, I was going to mention you know in France. I mean, France's president was elected as a you know he broke the party system. You know, but that's France. It's not going to be replicated here. But in Britain, you know, the Conservative Party there is not orthodox. Is not in, there's not an orthodox conservatism. Um, there, but they win elections because they're not socialists. So they they've figured out a completely different formula for conservatism. Yes, do you have the microphone? I do. Uh, <clears throat> there's been a lot of questions and answers uh, about how the election might change at the end of this year. My question is, where in the hell went the party leadership. I talked to someone who was a professional in politics recently, to be unnamed, who didn't know who Perez was. Hmm. And I was flabbergasted, but I also realized I haven't seen him on TV, I think, since the 2016 nominating system when Debbie Wasserman was in trouble and Perez got Mm. elected to that chairmanship. And as much as I read about politics, I have no idea who the chairman of the Republican Party is right now. These are the people that could change what, in my opinion, is the important election of November of 2020, which is to change the majority leadership in the Senate. The House will probably stay eight to five Trump will win again, but he will be irrelevant if the Senate changes its leadership, I think. Um, president is never irrelevant. Um, okay, you, you know, you're right. I mean, the, the decline of the parties is, is, uh, is, is remarkable, and the chairman of the Republican National Committee is, is a woman named uh, Rona McDaniel Romney, but she's dropped the name Romney. Um, and, 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 is, and has basically turned the RNC into a complete... Um, wholly owned subsidiary of, of the Trump campaign. So there is, there is no independence in the party at all. Uh, and so and I don't think those folks have the ability or the will to change all of that. And so um, because I'm from Wisconsin, I always have to tell my Wisconsin story here. So um, we had the three amigos in Wisconsin, and some of you may know this. I mean, you know, it was Ryan, Paul Ryan, Reince Priebus, and, and Scott Walker, all good friends, all this was my world for a while. So Reince Priebus and I stayed friends throughout um, the entire 26 campaign, including um, the, the night of the Access Hollywood video, where you know we were actually texting back and forth that that particular night, and you know was telling him what I, I thought he sh should do, which he actually did try to do, and failed. But but the, the larger point with all was that. Reince was the chairman of the Republican National Committee before Donald Trump became the nominee. He had no illusions who Donald Trump was at all. Could he have stopped him at all? He, of course, said no, refused to do it, and in fact facilitated Trump's rise. And, and his rationalization was, this is my job, that I am required to support whoever the nominee is. So 
one of the arguments that he and I had was, well, shouldn't the Republican, Donald Trump is one thing, but shouldn't there be a separate Republican Party that actually has its own identity? And he actually began the process of saying no, that it really needed to be just a creature. And so I think that's what's been happening, is that as opposed to the Democrat, the, the Democrat, and I think the Democratic Party is still suffering from uh, PTSD from the whole Debbie Wasserman Schultz uh, rigging the Sanders election and all of that stuff. But uh, I, I think there's this conscious decision that, that there is no such thing as the independent party, which, which again also came as a surprise because I would, I would, you'd like to think that there were people who I am a Republican, and that doesn't mean that necessarily that I am a, you know, a, a Trumpist, but that option has been eliminated. And the, the RNC is, I mean, literally indistinguishable from the Trump campaign now. My question is yeah. how, how to get back to the Republican Party of yore. Yeah. Uh, I was a lifelong Republican up until George yeah. uh, Bush in Iraq. And, and when you think about uh, the Republicans of old, you had Leverett Dirksen, Scranton, uh, Saltonstall, uh, who had the traditional Republican beliefs, free trade, limited government, uh, and so forth. Uh, you're, of course, very familiar with them. Uh, and, and I think talking about conservatism and Trump are antithetical. Yeah. I mean, Trump's not a conservative. He's, you know, egomaniac and uh, so forth. Um, I think, uh, you know, you look back on Barack Obama, and I think Barack Obama was a conservative uh, in, in the best sense of the word of conserving uh, the union. And, and uh, it would seem to me it would be a better choice of words to think about rational versus irrational oh. uh, uh, parties rather than conservative and uh, a liberal. Uh, well, let me start with that, that, that point. I, I do, I do think that the distinction between rational and irrational is important and why it is so crucial to have two rational parties. Um, there, there is a debate among my friends, um, and this is a very small group, um, should, you know, should, should, should all of us, should we leave the Republican Party, either form a third party or just simply vote with the Democrats? And there are people who have, who have done that. Um, and some of, and um, I, I no longer consider myself a Republican, but there are others who say, look, if we abandon the Republican Party to the, 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 the nut jobs, that's not good for the country. You need two rational parties. Um, Michael Steele, who's the former chairman of the Republican National Committee, uses the analogy that it's like, this is his house, and you've had these burglars break in at night. You know, He's not leaving the house. He's going to tell them to get out of the house. So um, I honestly don't know. I mean, this, this is the thing is, um, with every passing month, the Republican Party seals its identification with, with Trump. And if Trump is reelected, it means that he's around for eight years, which means you have an entire generation of young people whose entire view of the Republican Party and the conservative movement is going to be through the lens of seeing it as, 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 as the party of Donald Trump. And, and no one will remember any of the other traditions. So how do you get that back? I don't, I don't know. So this goes back to the question of, of why the, the third party is, you know, is there going to be a room for 
a third, say, the Federalists. I mean, look, the, the, we have had major political parties in this country that have vanished. The Whigs had a great and noble tradition. Um, Abraham Lincoln was a Whig, and yet the, the, the Whigs uh, you know, imploded upon themselves, broke up, and are largely forgotten by, uh, forgotten by history. I wish that the institutional inertia wasn't so great that the same thing could happen to the Republicans. I would like to think that, but I don't think it's going to happen. Yes, down there. Um, I'm a fan of your work, even though I'm not a conservative. So I want to tell you, I do listen to you quite frequently, and I find you a very thoughtful observer. And in many of the positions you take, I, have a, I agree with, actually. Um, but I, there's a couple I would disagree with. Number one, in 2018, the most stunning elections were not playing to the middle. Uh, that's not how you got Katie Hill. That's not how you got Katie Porter. That's not how you got Tom Malinowski and about seven or others I could mention mm -hmm. who flipped really red districts mm -hmm. in Orange County, in New Jersey, et cetera, right. in Illinois. So clearly when you appeal to your base and you energize them, what we discovered is there's more of them on cell phones than regular phones. So the, it turned out that the polls were wrong because they weren't getting enough youth vote recorded when the youth came out. We won so to speak. Uh, the same thing, as you know, happened um, in your own state. It's like, what, 39,000 people stayed away from Hillary, and that's why Wisconsin turned, because of what she lost in the Democratic vote. So my point is going to be this. I don't think... I, 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 we're far worse off than you are articulating. We, we're closer to 1861 than we are to 1776. We're on the verge of a civil war. And I think we've got to start owning that. And so if you say, how would you have talked after Fort Sumter to people who believed that Johnny Reb was the future of America? And it broke down. And I think that Trump is leading us toward a civil war. I also believe that Bill Maher is correct. He's been saying it for two years. Trump's not leaving. If he loses by a close vote, he'll claim it was rigged. If he loses by a massive vote, he will try to stay in power. So I, I, I think you, we, we need to recalibrate what we're up against. Last point. What was the war, the Civil War, about? It wasn't about slavery. Slavery was the big issue. What it was about was one society, which was very parochial, plantation-oriented, 1% at the top controlled everybody else, and that society did not want to change. And it was up against another culture, which we called the industrial culture, which was the blue states. We have that same clash because we never solved the Civil War. That's what is at the root cause of this, and that's why racism is as endemic as it is today. So the, it seems to me the only way we can get past this divide is not by papering over it. It's by starting to ask ourselves the question, are we Confederates or are we Unionists? And if so, how can we try to do this without the outbreak of armed hostilities when the Trump people have about 80% of the guns? <laughs> Your thoughts? True. <laughs> oh, there's a lot there. You know, I mean, I, I, I can be a lot darker than I have been here. Um, you know, I mean, you, you give me 1861, I'll, 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 I'll raise you 1933, okay? So, um, but, you know, I guess, the, the, I guess the question is, if you start thinking that way, are we going to have a civil war? Okay, so on my podcast today, I was talking with Congressman Dave Jolly um, from, from, from Florida, and he tells a story about some, uh, some friends of his were in the tourism business or whatever, and they go into the Oval Office and they meet with Trump um, to talk about whatever it was. And he comes out and he says afterwards, you know, everything you've ever said about Trump is absolutely true. It's even worse than you did. He said, you know, 
At one point in this conversation, um, President Trump said, have you ever seen America as divided as this? And people in the room would go, no, no, Mr. President, we've never seen it divided like this. And Trump, according to this guy, this is third hand now, um, says, I love it. Because this is what he wants. A guy like Trump thrives on the division, and the only reason that he has the space to do the things he has is because we are divided like this, because he can count on half the country deciding with him no matter what. So I do, I do take your point about the, the, the danger that we're in, but I guess I would caution that we, do we want to be the ones who are, are talking in Civil War terms? Because I, I will tell you, there, there is that, that's a real fear that I actually have. Um, one of the things uh, over the last several years that I've noticed is that ideas that seem very crackpotty in the, in the far reaches of the fever swamp that you, you think are, are just uh, remote possibilities suddenly become mainstream. Um, and I certainly don't want to see that whole idea of, of civil war. Now, on the issue of, of appealing to your base, I guess I'm just hoping that the, the presence of Donald Trump motivates the base um, itself. Secondly, I guess part of my thinking about centrism and, and base politics is that I do think that this election is going to be decided uh, in, the suburb, the, in the suburbs. It is going to be decided by those voters uh, in, in the suburbs of Philadelphia and Milwaukee and Detroit um, who will be making these, these kinds of decisions that it will be I mean, it's not going to be decided in Orange County. It's going to be decided in, in Michigan, northern, northern Virginia, uh, Pennsylvania, and, uh, and Wisconsin. Could, could I do a follow-up yeah, question? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So the only state that was admitted to the union with the explicit right to have the ability to leave if they ever chose was the state of Texas. So Texas, and the, what's called the accession agreement of the state of mm -hmm. Texas, says the U.S. government, because you were a sovereign nation huh. when you joined us, if you ever choose to leave, we will not take arms against you. Wouldn't it be a better strategy for us to start trying to help Texas? Because there's a movement in Texas to do that, to have oh, Texas articulate how Louisiana could go with them. Uh, I would believe that Mississippi would want to go with them, South Carolina. And, and it, it strikes me that if we would encourage the people who don't want women to have the right over their own bodies, if we would encourage the people who believe that racism is not only okay, white nationalism is the, the is de rigueur. If you think you're afraid of immigrants and you don't want any more, even though you won't have anybody to clean your toilets, I mean, when you, if you go down the list of you know, all, you know, God's God and whatever the third one is, I think if, if we would start looking at the culture divide, which is really the culture war, which never got solved because Appomattox, as you know, was a cessation of hostilities. It was not the formal end of the Civil War. It never ended. That's why you see the Civil War flags down in the South to this day. So my question is, shouldn't we, as thoughtful conservatives, in your case, progressives in mine, shouldn't we be looking at how do we unwind this thing? It's unwieldy. And I don't know that there is any way to take a Trump and make sense with it, because I believe that about 35% of the public has joined his cult. So to me, they're drinking Kool-Aid. But they're also drinking it, and we're going to be suffering. So is there some conversation we could stimulate on that culture divide question, which gets above Democrat, Republican, above conservative, and progressive. Well, you would hope so. That would come short of breaking up the union again. Um, so, no, no, I don't know. So, I, I mean, I, I think there'd be a lot more interest nationally in California seceding. I, I think you might find a bipartisan consensus there. They wouldn't let us because we're too rich. <laughs> 
Okay, so one, one, one point. Um, you, you actually cited my, one of my favorite statistics about Wisconsin, where you pointed out that um, the 39,000 votes. Um, so what he's referring to is that in Milwaukee County, Hillary Clinton got 39,000 fewer votes than Barack Obama had gotten. Um, she lost the state by 23,000 votes. So very clearly, if African-American, I mean, what a surprise, that African-Americans who turned out for Barack Obama did not turn out for Hillary Clinton. What a shock. Um, but th that's the number um, and that people have focused on, and I think legitimately so. However, the other story that I think is important is that in rural Wisconsin, Democrats lost a quarter of a million votes that went from Barack Obama to Donald Trump. So this problem of rural um, America is, is, is considerable. So um, that's, I've cited that 39,000 know, number many, many, many times. Uh, but yes, right here. So I think you said that about 50% of the country doesn't trust the media. I'm thinking it's more like 40%. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. If, right? I, if, I, if I misspoke, okay, okay. I, would, I would have said uh, uh, So I, I really think this is such a huge issue. When we were growing up, or at least a lot of us, you know, you had the major broadcast stations, and people believed that that was the truth. The fact that Fox News is able to lie and, and do what they do, and we have people not believing the facts anymore, which to your point earlier, you know, what, how do we resolve that? I, don't, I just don't think we've talked enough about how, because you would like to see people believe the truth, that, you know, it, even if, if, whether they're conservative or liberal, right? It's just it's I, beyond I, me. I would argue that this is like the central issue of our times. I mean, the, yeah, the truth is the oxygen of democracy, and, and, and when... People either don't know what the truth is or don't care. It's, it's, uh, it's naive to think that democracy uh, doesn't exist. This is not meant as a defense of Fox News. Okay, it's not. Um, but Fox News is only one part of this. Um, the, the, the role of misinformation you know, through social media, through Facebook, um, through other websites, it's, it's, it's a much larger ecosystem than you might think. Um, well, probably not, not anymore, but, but it grew incredibly fast and became, uh, and, the, and the flood of misinformation um, has intensified so much. I've actually told this story um, you know, in, in the past. So remember, I had been on the air for 23 years, and when you're on radio, you have a relationship with people that's different than television because you're in their heads every single day. So you have a relationship with them that goes back a very long time, and it's a relationship based on trust, I assume. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things up until 2015 that I, I, I was, I was always interested in uh, was making sure that people didn't spread BS. So you'd get the you know, forwarded emails or you'd get the Facebook post, and what I would do is I would make an effort among the people that I knew to, to push back and say, you know, this is not true. You know, there's not a warehouse of, you know, 50 bodies of people that Hillary Clinton has murdered in Ohio. That's just not true. Um, here's the fact. You know, you can be against her, but, but don't, don't blow your credibility by doing this. And up until late 2015, the reaction that I would, would get would be, hey, thank you. I'm not going to be forwarding Uncle Otto's chain emails anymore. I'm not going to be going to that website anymore. 
But starting in early 2016, I noticed something was changing. That, and these are people that I'd known for a very, very long time. And they would send me these weird things from these new websites that I'd never heard of. And I would send them back links saying, well, this is the real story. Here's a link to the Washington Post or NBC or, or NPR or, or something which corrects this. And I started getting the blowback going, those are liberal rags. I'm not believing anything. I'm not going to believe it unless I see it in, you know, eaglepatriotrising.com. Um, and so by the middle of 2016, it really hit me. Um, and, and I, I want to make it very clear that I had been very critical of media bias and, and much of the legacy media. This was something that I, I felt very strongly about and, and will still bring up it to anybody who wants to hear me talk about it. But what I realized was that our criticism had been so effective that we had succeeded in delegitimizing all fact-based journalism. And as a result, what I had thought was an alternative media voice had morphed into this alternative media silo that was impenetrable, that you could not break into it, and that people who you would normally have thought of, and I you know, thought that people who were listening to my show, at least, were kind of savvy and sophisticated in the ways of the media, way overestimated that. Now, we now know there was a flood of disinformation and misinformation, but I saw it happening in real time, and most of the really bad stuff didn't happen on Fox. It, it's below the radar, and this is part of the problem with social media, that there can be things that are out there that you won't even know are being said and disseminated until after the election's completely over. So this is the other thing, just to throw it out since we're being so dystopian here, um, we haven't even come to grips with what happens when we have the deep fakes. You know what deep fakes are? Yes. These are videotapes that will look like you are you know, saying something that you don't do. And this, the, the technology is becoming very sophisticated. So the normal human being, when they see a picture or when they see someone speaking on a videotape, will believe that it's true. And the, the potential of that to affect our elections is um, it's, it's, it's really concerning. So, so yes, this whole question of how do you get true information to people, how do you make them distinguish between what's true and what's false, and how do you get them to care about it, these are massive problems, and I don't know what the, there's an easy solution, I'll be honest with you. Well, I think media literacy is yeah. absolutely essential, but it seems to me, from what I read about schools, that they're trying to do that, you know, it just... It, like, my kids definitely heard that, yeah. you know, legitimate sources. And, and I mean, so how, how is it that well, people are can, not realizing can, these are not legitimate sources? So, so uh, my friend Charlie Firestone and I worked uh, together on the Knight Commission on Restoring Trust in, in the Media and Democracy. And one of the things that we eventually came up with was that we needed, um, you know, very significant efforts in two ways, of media literacy and civics literacy, mm -hmm. that we needed to revitalize citizenship, that Absolutely. we were faced with a crisis of citizenship. So that the goal was very dramatic, which is by the time that anybody was like, I think was 10 years old, um, they needed to be media literate. By the time they voted, they needed to be, and I think, I think it was Charlie, your idea, was, was to you know, require as a, uh, to graduate from high school that you pass the US citizenship test that we make immigrants take. Right to to basically have to demonstrate that you were you know um, civically literate. Yeah. I don't know that that's a magic bullet, but it's certainly a great starting point to deal yes. with what you're talking I about. I support that idea. Yeah. <laughs> yes, right, right here. Yeah. Um, just following up on that, I feel like I need to say 
in as controlled a way as possible. So what do we do? It's actually a screech. But it's, <clears throat> we were very clever, or oh, Barack Obama was so brilliantly elected, Clough and Axelrod and all the people who worked with him. This was an unusual election that, that won by getting people's attention in the right way and mani not manipulating, but using the information that we could from less social media then, but still in that way. We don't seem to have any smart people working for the Democrats or the rational side anymore. We just seem to be giving in and being swamped um, by all this information. So I know it's hard, and I know that we're, we've got universities in Georgia, Russia working against us and all, all around the world putting out misinformation. But we do have smart people who are rational thinkers and who know how to use social media. I'm not seeing them being brought in by the Democratic Party. I can't say what the Democrats are, are doing. Um, I will say, though, that the election of Barack Obama um, was, was really an, an extraordinarily maybe unique moment, given the fact we had the financial crisis, the way the Republicans were discredited, what a uniquely inspirational and charismatic figure he was. Because one of the things that I think a lot of Democrats have overlooked because of the, the Obama victories was how their party was then hollowed out everywhere else, um, in, you know, at, at, the, at the state level. So I do think that Democrats, I'm sorry not to directly be answering your question because I don't know where the smart Democrats are, but um, th they need to be a little bit more introspective and like what went wrong there. Now, I, I, I think that after 2016, I said, the Democrats needed an autopsy, the Republicans need an exorcism. So there, it, is, it, it is different. But I do think the Democrats do need to ask themselves, why do we lose in places like West Virginia so badly? Why are rural voters voting overwhelmingly against us? What, what is it that we're saying and doing? And I don't sense that kind of the, a full introspection in the way that, that, um, that, that they need to explain. Because I think the Obama thing was so gaudy and you know, inspirational. Okay, two, two more questions. Right here. I'd like to go back to where you started talking about the Faustian bargain and um, the tribalism. Because I, I, I have been deeply troubled in understanding how it happened that so many people gave up the morality and integrity of the religious beliefs. Your explanation of it's the invasion of the body snatchers yeah. and they need an exorcism is actually enlightening. But do these people really understand the lack of morality and integrity that's going on? Or You're is, talking about the Christians now? I'm talking about the Republicans who have swallowed Trumpism lock, stop, and barrel. Oh. Yes, the Christians certainly are part of that. But it's not just the evangelicals. It's everyone because this man is so immoral and has no integrity. Okay, I'll, I'll try to answer that quickly. I mean, you, you need to do separate. Those are kind of separate issues for me. Um, for a lot of people in politics, look, politics is about power. It's about getting what you want. It is, it is fundamentally transactional. Um, and so and maybe we should not be surprised that when people are faced with access and power versus morality, they're going to choose access and power. I mean, we all know about, you know, St. Thomas More, you know, and Henry VIII. Remember, he was like the only guy 
that stood up against everybody else went along with it. So political courage on moral issues is, is extremely, extremely rare. And he, lost, and he lost his head for it. So um, there, there, are, there are a lot of folks who will just shake their heads and say, you know, of course I don't like any of this, but this is what we have to deal with. These are the cards we're, we're, we're dealt. The evangelical Christian thing is the hardest, is, it's even harder because, and I, I will tell you when I wrote my book, this was the chapter that I found the most difficult to write, to explain this because you would think that the morality, and again, part of it is the, is, is frankly, is, is transactional, that because of the judges and abortion and a variety of other issues, and the powers of rationalization are so strong that they can convince themselves, well, God has the ability to raise up uh, people who are perhaps imperfect vessels. You know, Cyrus from Persia. King David did all kinds of terrible things, and yet he did it. This King David-Cyrus thing is a big deal. Um, but I still find it um, to, be, to be extraordinary um, to, uh, to, to watch the, the, the hypocrisy there. And it, it has been... It's been a huge price. I mean, in terms of the Faustian bargain, um, is it really worth it? There, there is actually still a vigorous debate among evangelical Christians on this issue. I will say this, even though the top line would be that they're overwhelmingly going along with this, beneath this, um, there are a lot of very powerful, very eloquent voices who are saying, this is the wrong choice. Um, and I do think that that's, that's an area where, where I would expect a backlash because there are people there who actually, you know, claim to believe things. So, yes. I'm sorry. No, you've already had a question. I want. How, how about you, all the way down there? Yes. So I wonder if the biggest kind of missing piece of the puzzle is science in both the bipartisan issue as well as the media. Um, on the one hand, right, there's a party that believes in science and believes in climate change and believes in science behind a woman's right to choose. Um, and on the other hand, especially as things have become more radical, the conservative party especially has become discounting science and been trying to annoy liberals, especially over issues around science. Um, so it seems to me that you know, science, scientific literacy, translating science for the public and really trusting science as fact, um, or at least that it has a factual obligation and should be verified, but you know, is still fact, is kind of that missing piece that could change things. Uh, yes, however, and unfortunately we are out of time because otherwise I would, I would argue with you. Um, yeah, this is, this is very disturbing. I mean, the, 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 the anti-intellectualism and the anti-science lines are, it would help if, um, and again, every time an advocate overstates the case or appears to be cynically using the science, they undermine it. So for a lot of Republicans, and I'm not saying I agree with this, okay, um, they, they will look at the sky is falling, um, you know, doom and gloom scenarios that have been proven false, and they'll say, see, it's, 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 it's not that bad. So in, in, in some ways, again, this is where credibility is very, very important. Um, and not to open the can of worms, but I'm not sure what you mean when you say um, denying science on a woman's right to choose, because I'm not sure that's a scientific debate in this country right now. So, I, On that note, yeah. Yeah, so. let's thank our speaker.
Thank you. Thank you very much. Of all the public squares, I credit this one with being the richest array of questions that we've entertained, and one that is, I think, going to cause all of us to reflect more broadly as we watch the next phase of political life unfold leading in to the 2020 elections. So we really appreciate the extraordinary reach of your thinking and also the inspirational uh, way in which you've challenged us all to rethink some of our basic assumptions. Thank you very much. Well, thank, you. thank you. I'd now like to invite all of you to join us for a reception in the foyer. Um, please take this opportunity to meet some of our student fellows who are here this evening and who are eager to meet community members like you. And as you leave the reception, make sure to put your name tag on a table as we do, of course, recycle. Thank you for coming. <laughs>